Joining us today, we have Clinton Williams. Clinton is a research scientist with the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Agricultural Research Service, which is an in-house research organization. So welcome, Clinton, and thank you for joining us. It's good. Glad to be here. Uh, so very nice. Now, uh, we, as I was saying beforehand, we're talking, so I told you already a little bit there that we uh, ran across your name uh, tied into talking about you and uh, using treated wastewater as irrigation and how that's uh, presumably going to be more and more done in the future. Yes, so my research is all about how to take wastewater that comes out of sewer treatment plants or really any wastewater. So there's a lot of wastewater that comes from heat processing or food processing plants. Also a lot of wastewater that comes from agriculture itself because we'll have drainage water and tailwater that comes off of ag farms. But all that wastewater has been sort of used once and how can we safely use that again? Now, I had seen and uh, I, I believe you part of the research you've done because you're 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 both a physicist and a chemist both right yes so my my, my work is on the fate and transport so how organic chemicals mostly trace organics like my so my early work was on pesticides but now i work more on things like pharmaceuticals and personal care products that are found in wastewater because wastewater treatment plants are designed to do a really good job at removing carbon and nitrogen from water so that we don't eutrophy lakes and rivers and streams and cause problems like that. Mm -hmm. What's not very good at is removing really low concentrations of things like pharmaceuticals. So a lot of the pharmaceuticals that go into a wastewater treatment plant come out the other, come out the other end. So we have the very low concentrations, but they come out. And so my work is to try and find how do those pharmaceuticals interact with the environment? Are they filtered to the soil? Does the soil degrade them? Are they absorbed to the soil? Do they move to groundwater? Can they move into surface waters? And that's that's the research I work on. Okay. And so what type of, I guess let's talk for background. So they understand where, what we're talking about here in a minute for background. But what is the process that um, treated water goes through in order to be cleaned? So initially, sewer treatment plants were developed because you had just raw sewage going into rivers and lakes and things like that. And what would happen is it started to smell really bad. And most of that smell, most of the, the problems that came from it, or from the fact that you had carbon, it was a fairly easily biodegradable carbon, and it used all the oxygen in the, in the water. And by doing that, it went anaerobic, so you applied start breathing. Uh, and that's what people look at said, oh, that's really gross water. Hmm. So what they did is they determined to follow true processes that they could push the water through the plant and in essence, it's used microorganisms to eat carbon. Ooh. It ate the carbon, it ate the carbon, it, it degraded it in the, in the plant because they would add oxygen, they would aerate, they would do things like that. And that would remove that carbon. So when you release the water into the environment, it wasn't dirty. It didn't have carbon. So then along comes, we start having problems with 
like nitrogen in the water. You hear a lot about nitrogen, nitrates especially, and that's because nitrates for people like us that are adults or even anyone over about two years old, nitrates aren't really a problem. Our, our guts are capable of removing that nitrate. But for babies that are really young, that nitrate is a real problem because in their guts, our, our guts are such that all the microbes there that take the nitrate and in an anaerobic condition in your gut, nitrate is converted to something called nitrite, which mm -hmm. is just NO2 instead of NO3. Mm -hmm. That nitrate can bind to hemoglobin in such a way that it can't be removed. So in essence, you have a hemoglobin that is now no longer usable. And you have to wait until that hemoglobin is a few weeks for that hemoglobin to be replaced by a new, new hemoglobin. And it's a disease called metahemoglobinemia. And it causes babies to, in essence, suffocate while they're breathing. And it would often be heard of it as blue baby syndrome. Because the hemoglobin, and can you explain how does the hemoglobin, how should it normally work? So the hemoglobin takes oxygen from your lungs to your cells. And then at the cell, the oxygen is replaced by carbon dioxide, which is then removed back to your lungs, and it's again exchanged for oxygen. Okay. When the nitrite gets there, the nitrite binds on, and neither carbon dioxide or oxygen can displace it. So it's now no longer usable hemoglobin. I see. So it causes the hemoglobin to be altered in such a way that it can no longer function. Okay. And that's why, so when that started to happen, we realized that nitrate was a problem in water. So we decided how do we remove nitrate, in essence just nitrogen, from the wastewater stream. So we then started developing new techniques that would do things like nitrify and denitrify. And I don't know how many of your students might know about the nitrogen cycle, but the nitrogen cycle, just like the carbon cycle and the water cycle, is a cycle in which nitrogen moves through different different parts of the of, of the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And denitrification takes it from nitrate to N2 gas, which is what most of our atmosphere is. So to do that, you have to go, you have to alternate between aerobic and anaerobic. So you go aerobic and anaerobic, aerobic and anaerobic in your plant. And that removes the nitrogen. So we've done a really good job of figuring out ways to remove carbon and nitrogen from this one. Now we're to the point where we're starting to worry about other compounds that are at very low concentration. So a good example is like a pharmaceutical. I, I measure pharmaceuticals. Most of the pharmaceutical you take, so a drug you take, mm -hmm. most of it just goes right through your body. Oh, really? You get the concentration within your body up to a level where it needs to be so that you can get the therapeutic uh, effect of it. And then it, you either eliminate it through feces or through urine. Mm -hmm. So it goes into the wastewater treatment plant, but if the concentrations are very low. So inflow concentrations of pharmaceuticals I'll measure oftentimes will be in the parts per billion range. And a part per billion is really a little number. Like the way I try to, I, I like to explain it to kids is if you took every single person on earth and you lined them up kind of, in, in, a, in a big group, 
and then take eight of those people and paint them red. Find those eight red people in that entire population of people. That's part per billion. So that's a really low, low, low concentration. Yeah. <laughs> that's a nice analogy. Yeah, that is, I like that a lot. So And it's too it's too large or well in this case too small, right? To to even begin to comprehend. I mean, we don't understand it, Billy. We understand a hundred because we could have a hundred dollars or a hundred pennies, but we don't understand a billion. So I really like that. So then on top of that, if you think about that concentration, so you ask people when you're taking this wastewater and use putting it in the environment. Most people you ask, what do you, you know, what, what is an acceptable concentration for the, these compounds to be? They'll say zero. And the problem is, you can never measure zero. I can measure below my detection limit, but so for me to measure these compounds, this concentration, I'll take like a whole liter of the water and I'll concentrate it down into half a milliliter. So now I've just taken a, I've done a, a 2,000 times concentration of this. I can start to maybe measure it. Sometimes I may have to concentrate 10 liters down to one milliliter. Oh, wow. And so that's, you know, we're talking about a, a really, you know, high concentration factor. And I may say there's none there. But if I had taken one more milliliter of my 10 liters, that one molecule may have been there. So you can never measure zero. Okay. We have to figure out where it is that we're comfortable setting those limits. Oh, wow. And so my research is all trying to figure out how to find where these compounds go in the environment and see if it's safe or not safe. Okay. And who decides what those limits are? Usually that's going to be a regulatory agency. And my work is not at all regulatory. Okay. So my work is all what the regular regulators will use to determine whether they should or shouldn't regulate and what level okay. they should regulate at. And that's that's why that's what I assumed it'd be. I say someone is looking at the research you're doing to make those decisions then, right? Yeah, so typically for the whole United States it would be EPA. Okay. Because they're tasked with water quality. Okay. But for the most part states so the EPA is there as sort of a backstop for the states. If the states want to regulate, they're more than they can regulate. So EPA sets rules that are sort of the minimum, and then the states can have primacy in this in this realm, and they can say, well, EPA says one part per billion, but we're not comfortable with that, so we're going to say half a part per billion. Okay. That's up to up, up to the states. Now, if the states don't do their job right and allow the number to or allow things to become a problem, so that they're exceeding the, the EPA's numbers, then EPA steps in and takes over. Okay. Now, I, I think this question is going to get us more into kind of what you talk about a lot of times when you talk to classrooms. I mean, you, this is something you do. Is uh, if after I use the bathroom and I flush. It's just gone, right? I never that's just gone. It disappears, right? So that's the thing is because like in a lot of places, say in rural Indiana, mm -hmm. most people who go to the bathroom and the most people in the United States that, that go to the bathroom go to the bathroom in a septic system. 
Okay. And then septicum goes into a tank where all the solids settle out, which is just like we do in a, a large sewer treatment plant. We allow that water to settle so that anything that's big or floats, we always refer to them as sinkers and floaters, can be removed by physical processes. Okay. They fall to the bottom of the water or they go to the top and we can skim them off. And then they become, in the vernacular, biosolids or sludge. We then take those and we'll dry them out or we'll do a little bit more treatment to them to remove pathogens. We typically will let them digest in the anaerobic environment for a certain number of days. And then when they come out, we can go spread them on fields. They become fertilizer, they become amendments, things like that. In a septic system, that's what's happening in the septic tank. And then mm -hmm. after that, because every once in a while you have to have your septic tank pump, yep. then the water goes into a leach field. And we're allowing the soil in this leach field, the water infiltrates through the soil, and we're allowing the soil to do what the rest of the sewer treatment plant does. So the majority of people in the United States will have their water treated that way. And then anyone in the city has it all collected into, into pipes, taken to one central location, and then off it goes through a process where we're maximizing those processes so it doesn't take a long time. In a septic system, you're looking at treatment times on the order of you know weeks to months. In a sewer treatment plant, you need to worry about having treatment times on the order of hours and days. Oh, wow. Wow. It's a lot faster. Hey, and so it, that water actually processed through a plant feasibly could in a day? Oh, uh, typically retention times in a sewer treatment plant are going to be anywhere from, say, 18 hours. If you have high flows coming through, down to 12 hours, but then up to maybe 20 hours. Oh my goodness! And so, what all is happening then in in that plant in that short amount of time to make that water clean enough to release? So, does it go? We optimize all the processes. We have the right oxygen levels, whether we want aerobic or anaerobic. We add oxygen. In fact, most sewer treatment plants, the lar single largest uh, user of energy in them, is to aerate water. So we have to pump air under pressure to the bottom of a, of a tank and get the water to come out in bubbles so that we have plenty of oxygen available for the microbes to grow. Okay. So we'll, we'll do that. We, we optimize those uh, processes, the microbiological processes that are occurring. And then after we do that, we've produced a lot of cells. And those cells like to clump together so then we put them in really, really calm tanks where the water flows through really slowly and we let those cells sink to the bottom. What sinks to the bottom, we take off the bottom, the water comes out the top, and those cells at the bottom, we take some of those cells and we take them back to the start of the plant so that they can re-inoculate the system and keep it going. That's, that's activated. Okay. And so... Have I lost you? Oh, we can still see it here. Yeah. Okay, well, I think the computer went to sleep. <laughs> so when we do that, the the cells go back to the beginning and start over again. And then some of those cells we take off and put them into the sludge. So that's mm -hmm. how it occurs. 
And they do a really good job of removing carbon and nitrogen, but really low concentrations. They don't do a very good job of really low concentration chemicals. And so then where does the water go? So after that, the water comes out. And the last thing we have to do to it is we have to make sure that it's safe. So it can't have any pathogens in it. Okay. So that's when we will disinfect it. We'll disinfect either using something like chlorine or a disinfectant that's, that's a chemical disinfectant that breaks down the cells. And then, or we might use something, if it's the right kind of water, we might use something like UV light. But we'll run the water across bank after bank of UV lights. Mm -hmm. And those UV lights, in essence, are the right wavelength and the right intensity and energy that they break apart the DNA of all the pathogens. Oh, well, that's I realize cool. UV light was used in some water treatment plants. That's really neat. Hmm. All right. So after it's treated, where does the water go? So then in a place like Indiana, you'll probably release it into a river or a lake. I work with people in Pennsylvania and at Penn State University in the 1970s, they had too much phosphorus going into the river. And the, the phosphorus in the river was causing problems in the Chesapeake Bay. So they came up with the idea of instead of, so it rains plenty there, they don't need to irrigate, but to clean the water even further, they took all, they take all the water from their treatment plant and they irrigate it on land. So that as the water infiltrates through the soil, it removes the phosphorus into the soil. So when the water comes up in groundwater later and goes into the stream, it's cleaner. Oh. But then in a place like where I live, we don't have any rivers to put the water. We have rivers, but they're all dry. Oh. So some places we'll put the water into a dry river. There's no dilution. But for the most part, in a place like central Arizona in the Phoenix area, water's in high demand. Mm -hmm. And so all summer long when we have high temperatures and need a lot of water on grass or trees or parks, things like that, we take all that water and we use it for irrigation. Or in the wintertime, we'll recharge it to groundwater so that in the future, we can draw it out of the groundwater again. Okay. And so uh, well, that leads to two paths of questions there, doesn't it? Um, it, so is it stored somewhere? Is there separate for irrigation? I mean, it, do you have like a reservoir that it goes into then is pumped out of that? So that's the problem with using wastewater for irrigation is if you want to store a lot of it, you need to make a really big reservoir. Mm -hmm. We typically don't have a lot of space to make those huge reservoirs. So usually what we do is we just put it straight into purple pipes. So if you ever see a pipe that's like a PVC pipe like you'd have in an irrigation system in your yard or something like that, and it's painted purple, yeah, that means it's wastewater. Uh -huh. oh. That's, the, that's the, the international symbol. Everyone, people in Israel reuse their wastewater. Any place you put wastewater in a pipe, it has to be purple. Okay. That's let everyone know that Don't it's- Don't drink out of the purple pipe. No. <laughs> So in my house, right behind my house, I have a canal that delivers irrigation water. Okay. And we also have about three hours away from me, pristine mountains without a lot of them. It's just mountains with streams and things like the water running through. And if I were to ask you which water you'd want to drink, a pristine cold stream from a high mountain 
Yeah. The brown gross water from my canal in my, in my backyard. I'm going to take the pristine one. <laughs> or water out of a purple pipe. Which water would you drink? Mountain. I'm going to go with the mountain one. It just sounds, I mean, that sounds better. I'm going to drink out of the purple pipe. Oh, what? The reason is, is because I know it has been disinfected. Ah. The single biggest danger you face when you go to drink water is if there's a pathogen in that water. Okay. There may be a pathogen in that mountain water. Ah, it's better, but there might be a pathogen. Okay. By drinking water out of that purple pipe, I know it has been disinfected. It's a safer bet. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, you know that 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 goes back to the to where all these epidemiological studies get started. In the 1800s, in London, there was a place in in London. It was like a poor part of London. But people started dying from cholera. They couldn't figure out. They didn't know it was cholera at the time. They didn't know what it was, but they knew people were dying. They couldn't figure out why. So this one doctor got out a map. Mm -hmm. and on the map, he actually drew where everyone died. He put a little X, and he would make bar, in essence, bar charts where people lived that died. And he found that they all were in one place. And he traced it back to one well. There was a well on Broad Street in London. That well had cholera in it because they had raw sewage going into the river and there was a, a way for the raw sewage to get from the river to this well. They couldn't get people to stop drinking from the well, so finally they took the handle off of it. Mm -hmm. It made everyone really mad because they had to go much further to get their water, but no one else died from cholera. <sighs> so that's why I say you drink the one you know has been disinfected. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Hey. And so, how long in the the other? It could go through a purple pipe for irrigation, or it could be a discharge to allow for recharge for water recharge for an aquifer. Yeah. And so, how long does a typical large city aquifer? How long is the recharge time? So, for the I work in a place here in the Phoenix area where it takes a about so what happens is the water goes from the sewer treatment plant mm -hmm. through the pipe that's about eight miles long and then it's delivered to this location called the Gilbert Riparian Preserve and they just simply spread it out on old fields that they've turned into like ponds for habitat. They, they put the water to about a foot deep, they let it infiltrate and keep it full until the infiltration rate drops to a certain level where they say that they're not getting enough infiltration anymore. Then they turn off the water to that one pond. They infiltrate all the way into groundwater, and then they will go and they'll, in essence, disc the surface of the pond, increase its infiltration rate again, and then they'll start adding water again. From the time it leaves pond surface till it's extracted at the at the wells that draw from this water is approximately thirty years. Okay. Oh wow. Mm. So it's about. Uh, 450 feet through the soil and mm -hmm. uh, consolidated material from the surface to where the screens and the wells are. Perfect. And, and that's something I think a lot of people don't realize that the soil filters your water. Yeah. So one of the things that the soil does really well is it can do a, it can do a, a physical filtering where you have chunks of stuff that get stuck in the pores. That's why the infiltration slows down. 
but you also have the ability for microorganisms to soil microorganisms are incredibly uh, tenacious and capable of removing compounds because if you think about their their environment they're living in this soil that for the most part until a plant grows through is pretty barren mm -hmm. be some water might be a few nutrients but there's really not that much so as soon as something comes through into their uh, sphere that is nutrient they go like crazy if you've ever run outside in the summer when you've had a very small rainstorm. So a small rainstorm comes through, you'll get that smell. Yeah. And you smell that smell. Everyone yeah. can't explain it, but everyone knows that smell. Those are actinomycetes that get a little bit of moisture in them. They're soil microorganisms. They get a little bit of moisture and they start to metabolize so quickly that those smells you smell are just volatile compounds that they're metabolizing. And that's what you smell. Very nice. That's really neat. Yeah, I like that. So they're very, they're very, very soil microorganisms are really good at removing things. So that happens, and then the soil itself can, in essence, use chemistry to sorb things out of the water. So as the water moves through, you can have organics absorbed into organic matter. You can have organics and uh, ions, metals sorbed onto clays and the the mineral fraction of the soil. So soil is a really, really good, uh, in essence, not, not just a filter, but it's like a, a bioreactor where you get biology going on, you get uh, chemical processes, you get physical processes. They're all working together to remove these compounds because anyone who's studied the water cycle knows we only have so much water on the earth. We get a little bit more here and there when like a comet would land, or we send some into space with the astronauts. But for the most part, the water we have is the water we have. Yeah. This gets recycled around and around and around. So everyone gets to drink water that's been through other things. Wow. <laughs> when you say other things, I mean, it might've been people and yeah. I mean, you could have you could be drinking water that's been through a dinosaur. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Sarah, you uh, you say I've been hogging questions. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yes. Been, well, I just I was interested earlier when you were talking about the EPA as kind of that backstop, and that then states could do their own testing. But how often, in general, are are different places tested? Is is there a, like a like a, a schedule that said or is it is it fairly often or is it like once a year or so right now for wastewater reuse for things like pharmaceuticals that i work on there are no drinking water standards there are no standards for it really no we don't have standards part of that is because it's very expensive oh. and it's such a low concentration that for a good example if you wanted to test your, your, your wastewater for, say, a pharmaceutical like lincomycin, it's an antibiotic. You take that sample, you would send it off to a lab. It would take you minimum two weeks to get the sample back. So if you wanted to know if this water was 
good for release, you would have to have a reservoir big enough to keep 200 or two weeks worth of water stored before you can start to release it. But all along that time, you've been putting new water into it. So the one that may be the problem was a little portion of that. And now if you see a problem, you just get rid of the whole water, all the water. So some of the things we measure for on a continual basis. So the thing we're really concerned about, as I said earlier, pathogens. Mm -hmm. So we measure not necessarily pathogens, but what we call surrogates. So it's typically E. coli. So if there's living E. coli in the water, we assume that there might be living pathogens. So those are measured, depending on the permit you have, anywhere from once a day to multiple times a day. Now the result from that water, they can get those, those results back within a day or two because you put it on a filter and what happens is if you start to find them, then you realize one of your processes has broken down. So you have to fix that. Okay. So that's where the monitoring comes in. Now, other things like nitrogen, because remember we talked about how nitrogen can be a problem. Things like nitrogen, we'll measure for nitrogen maybe once a week, uh, maybe as little as once a month. But when those numbers come back for nitrate, then we know that there might be a problem. Because most places, like say in the Midwest or most of the United States other than the Southwest, when you take that water and you release it, you're releasing it into another body of water, whether it's a river or a lake. So you get dilution. So you may have the, the, the key number for nitrate is 10 parts per million N. So if your your numbers are above 10 parts per million, you still are probably going to be okay because you put that water into a much larger water body. So now you've dropped it down to less than 10. Diluted. Yeah, yeah you've diluted it. And really other than for a two-year-old kids two years and under, that nitrate isn't necessarily a poison. But it can lead to things like causing more microbes in the in the river to grow, so it gets it, it, it takes all the carbon and it ruins it, or it makes it smell it. Mm -hmm. The other thing we'll worry about is carbon, and that's the way we measure for carbon is something called BOD, biochemical oxygen demand. So you'll take a sample of the water, you'll put it in a bottle at a certain temperature, mm -hmm. and then you'll measure the oxygen level to see if the oxygen level has gone down to a point at which you have too much carbon. If that's the case, then you have to change your processes to remove more carbon. And when you say um, look at the oxygen level, is that the dissolved oxygen level in that water? Usually it's the dissolved oxygen level, but that means that you have to be very careful about how much of a hit space you have. Okay. Yeah, dissolved oxygen is one of the things that we have uh, students measure. And, and that's why they that's why they measure anytime you have a lab in 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 school, whether it's college or high school, maybe your teachers aren't telling you this, but there's a reason you do it because it's important maybe down the line. And sometimes it's hard to see why it's important. It's kind of like when I when my kids have calculus. And they're like, why am I, why, why do I need to know calculus? And I say, well, someday, if you go further into physics, you'll understand why calculus is there because it makes it all easier. Yeah. 
Yes. And the, day in which they, the day in which they figure out why the calculus made their life easier, they realize, oh, that's why I learned it. Yeah. Yeah. So if someone, which that kind of brings us to a good point, what do you, would you recommend students? Um, is there things that they need to look at to, to really study to be successful if they wanted to work um, in a position like yours? So what I always tell every student is the most important thing to know is math. Really, really learn your math because math is what's going to help everything else. And when you do that, don't just memorize equations because I don't know if, if when, I, when I grew up, they called it dimensional analysis. I don't, I don't know if they still call it dimensional analysis. Yeah. But if you do dimensional analysis, you can answer any question because you look at the units and you can get it in the right units. So math is really important. And then on top of that, if you're going to go into, if biology is what excites you, you need to also learn some chemistry because in essence, all biology is are little chemistry factories. That's what they do. They use chemistry. If you're a chemist, if you, if chemistry excites you, you need to learn biology because unless you learn the biology, you don't understand you don't have to know all of the biology, but don't shy away from learning things outside your field, what, you, what excites you. Because that being well-rounded is really important. I love I love that point. That's a great point. And I think it just, you know, like you said, stepping outside of what excites you kind of brings in that context for what you're learning. So that's, yeah, that's a great point. If you went 200 years ago and you found a scientist, they could pretty much know everything there was to know about all the different things. They could know everything was about math, they could know everything about chemistry, about biology, all of that. Today, the, the, so that made them well-rounded so they could make the connections of how biology interacted with chemistry and interacted with physics. Today, there's just too much knowledge to know all of it. So that's why it's really important to have at least the ability to talk to someone in that other field so you can start to make those connections. Yeah, and that's what we tell students. It's you got to be very well rounded in the basics, and there's no pure science. It's you have to know multiple things, and uh, I love that. Well, we appreciate you taking time to meet with us and uh, chat with us for an interview on this and sharing some of what you're doing in the science behind that with students and and people. <laughs> well, not the students aren't people. Well, some. Um, <laughs> Well, and anyway, if anyone wants to see more about what I do, they can go to my, if they just go to USDA's website, Agricultural Research Service, I'm in Maricopa, Arizona, and they can Google that and see what I do, and I'm more than happy to answer any questions. <laughs>